It used to be, you know, the old saying was, don't panic, it's organic, which means that you could get away with a certain amount of blemishes or defects <laughs> in the product that <laughs> yeah, you sent into totally. the market because people would expect some holes from bugs. They might expect a little bit of pressure from the mildew. They may expect that product to be a little bit off color because you don't have access to the good conventional fertilizers, but not now. Your organic standards, if you took a look at the spec sheets that our processors that we supply send us, the standard for organic product almost mirrors the standard for conventional product now. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. In today's episode, I interview Doug Caba, who is a manager for a big organic farming operation in California. Um, I met Doug. He is a family friend. I met him at the Thanksgiving time frame, and uh, he was such a cool guy. We started talking. And I realized that he did this, and it's something that I've always wanted to know a lot more about because I care about nutrition and my health, but I just don't know, you know, too much about uh, the whole farming process and exactly how the food ends up on my table. So if you're like me and that's something you wanted to know, this episode should be really interesting for you. And spoiler alert, Doug basically blows my mind in this interview in the conversation over organic versus traditionally grown produce um, in that I kind of thought him... Do being an organic farmer himself, he would just be all about organic veggies, um, but he is not. So check out why that is in this episode. Without further ado, here is Organic Farmer. Doug, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Blake, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to tell you a little bit about what it is that I do. I am so excited to learn a little bit more about my food. I'm very into my diet and eating well and eating healthy food. And yet, it's not something that I have truly explored the uh, the growing and the production side of. So I'm really excited for this. Um, so why don't you first tell us what size of an operation you manage? And is this like a year-round operation? Is it something that you can only do for part of the year because of weather constraints? Sure. Well, right now, we farm about what we would call 2,200 net acres. So a net acre is just basically an acre of land that's able to be farmed. Now, on those 2,200 net acres, we have the ability to crop those up to two times a year. So if you were able to get two crops off the same acre, then you would theoretically be farming about what we would call, you know, if you doubled it, we'd be at 4,400 crop acres. Okay. So our acreage is split between two locations. Um We have our coastal operations in California on the central coast. Then we also have what we call our desert operations, which are located down in the southeastern part of California. And the Imperial Valley is what we call the desert operations. And do you run these both at the same time, or what's the schedule like between these two? They're really not simultaneous operations. The purpose of, of being in the two different geographical and two different microclimates is so that we can continue with our, our program on a year-round basis. What we do is our, uh, our spring and summer program would take place on the central coast of California, where we operate. We generally harvest up there from around the 15th of March until somewhere near the end of October. 
and then we'll move operations down into the Imperial Valley of California in late October, where we harvest there until about the 15th of March. So what we try to do is just maintain a seamless operation where we can supply the customers that uh, that that we supply with uh, our raw product. We try to supply them year-round. So they need product 52 weeks a year. Yeah. Um, they need to have a consistent supply, something that they can count on, and not go through a period where they can get product and then go through a month where they can't. So, you know, their customers have come to expect, you know, a steady supply. So as a, as a grower, it's become our responsibility to provide that steady supply. What is the, I, I imagine it's got to be a very um, fine, or like fine line, basically, as a temperature threshold for what these plants can withstand during the winter time. Because it's funny, like I just moved to Phoenix, Arizona from San Francisco and it is colder in Phoenix, Arizona right now than it like ever was in San Francisco. It's like this just bone dry, like desert cold when it gets cold and uh, versus on the coast, it was very, very temperate is the uh, the Imperial Valley where you go for the winter time. Like how much warmer could it really be there than it is in the uh, on the central coast of California? I think it would surprise you how much warmer it actually is because, you know, we've just got a lot more exposure to sunshine and a lot more UV units down here in comparison to being on the oh, coast. Right, where, right. You know, we get very little precipitation here in the Imperial Valley. The average rainfall for the winter in the Imperial Valley is somewhere between an inch and a half and two and a half inches for the entire season. Where if you take a look at our coastal operations, I mean, uh, north of Paso Robles, where we are during the spring and summertime, uh, the average annual rainfall up there should be somewhere between 16 and 20 inches. So uh, the amount of precipitation really makes a big difference. The amount of cloud cover makes a big difference. Um, That's such a good north- point about cloud cover. I wouldn't have thought of that because exactly what you just said is so true out here as well, where it might be very cold outside, but the sun is shining and the sun is there. And that's got to, I imagine, be so important for the plants. Exactly. And one of the biggest things that we fight, um, we do everything organically our produce is all organic so one of the biggest things that we fight is what they call mildew which is just basically a result of uh, you know wet conditions conditions that don't dry out on a daily basis and your your commodities like organic spinach organic arugula they're much more subject to uh, what they call downy mildew than, uh, than some of the other things like romaine or iceberg things like that so we've got to try to get away from that during the winter time so that's why we come to the desert where the relative humidity is lower um we're actually able to for a lack of a better term we try to put that produce to bed dry every night meaning that if we're going to irrigate we'll irrigate in the morning and then try to let uh, let that dry out a little bit in the afternoon mm-hmm. and go to sleep dry and then it's less of a uh, less of a host for the mildew spores so the wetter, the wetter it is, the more mildew you get. So we try to stay as dry as possible. That makes a lot of sense. Is that more of a concern because it's organic farms? Like, are is there are there GMO foods and stuff that just you don't really have to worry about mold and mildew because they just naturally fight it or something? Well, when the difference between you know when you're farming organically versus conventionally is organically there are materials that you can use that will actually inhibit the growth of the mildew. So. You've got certain fungicides that are at your disposal that you can use that that are highly effective. The problem with organic agriculture is we have certain materials that are naturally derived materials that that have, there's some degree of efficacy when it comes to controlling mildew, but but about, it's probably 
90% less successful than, than his conventional counterpart. <laughs> right. So when I plant an acre of spinach, let's say that uh, on a weekly basis, just using us, for example, we'll plant 10 to 12 acres of spinach per week. During the times of high mildew pressure, it's highly possible that I could lose all 12 acres to mildew Damn. and never be able to harvest that product. Where if I was doing that same that same amount of acreage conventionally, I may harvest 80 to 100% of it. So wow. it's, uh, it's a huge challenge for us from an organic perspective, trying to keep this produce clean. It's, uh, the expectations for organics have changed so much. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, you would think that the average organic customer was your typical tree hugger with long hair and maybe a flowered shirt and, and uh, you know, somebody that was uh, kind of a leftover from the 70s. But that's not really the case now. Organics have become so mainstream that uh, your average consumer is basically just your average housewife. Some of them, you know, you Walmart has even begun carrying a, a larger organic line because the average Walmart shopper has uh, has demanded that they carry some organic. So you're catering to an entirely different consumer than, say, 20 years ago. Yeah. So consequently, the standards for organics have become much higher as well. It used to be, you know, the old saying was don't panic, it's organic, which means that you could get away with a certain amount of blemishes or defects <laughs> in the product that yeah, you sent into totally. the market because people would expect some holes from bugs. They might expect a little bit of pressure from the mildew. They may expect that product to be a little bit off color because you don't have access to the good conventional fertilizers, but not now. Your organic standards, if you took a look at the spec sheets that our processors that we supply send us, the standard for organic product almost mirrors the standard for conventional product now. It's so funny to hear you say that. It's something that I've, it's like, I guess I've almost subconsciously noticed it, but never really thought that thought out loud, which is to say how much nicer my organic food looks now than it did like 10 years ago. Like exactly what you just said when I, I remember when I first started shopping organic. Yeah. Like I said, maybe like 10 years ago or something like half the time when I would get an apple there would it, like all of the organic apples just look kind of crappy, you know? And it's yeah, like, yeah, Oh, well, that's like rough. what an organic apple looks like. Like that's how you know it's an organic apple, you know? And now I never get an organic apple where uh, like a, an insect took a bite out of it ever. They're just, they look perfect. No, no. And you know that, and that's kind of a, that's kind of a two edged sword in a way, because, you know, you would like to think that, uh, that producing or growing organically, you know, has some benefits in terms of just carbon footprint or going green. You know, you'd like to think that, okay, we're growing this organically. We, we should be, we should be a little friendlier to mother earth than what our conventional counterparts are. But, but theoretically that's really not true because now that we have to basically meet the same specification as conventionally grown product, we've got to do a whole lot more out here in the field just to get that product accepted because you're, when, when your processors have such a strict specification for the product they receive, that means that uh, a lot of our product gets rejected at the processor's door because it doesn't meet their specifications. Of course, we're out here, you know, trying to do the best job we can to keep the bug pressure to minimum, to keep the mildew pressure down. But uh, sometimes when it hits that receiving dock, it's just too far out of their specification for them to be able to use it. And, and the shame is 
is there's really no place for that produce to go. Uh, most of that comes right back to the field and is dumped. What? So, I was going to say, know, I, we, I, doesn't that get purchased then as like organic chicken feed or like organic, it, I don't know, other animal it feed? doesn't. There really isn't a secondary market for this kind of thing. And it's kind of a funny story is one time a few years ago, and I, I may have told you one time that my actual background growing up and in my younger adult life was spent the beef production business, large scale beef production. I mean, hundreds of thousands of cattle a year. And, uh, of course, you know, not only do I eat my organic produce, but I also like a big old ribeye to go right along with it. So, uh, we had some friends over that, uh, they brought their daughter over from the San Francisco Bay area and her husband, and they were, they were vegan. Okay. So me being this Kansas raised farm kid raised on beef and, and potatoes, that was kind of my first exposure to a true vegan. And, uh, we began a little dialogue that night. I thought, oh boy, you know, you know, the vegans are probably going to just see this thing one way and think that the vegan way is the only way. But, you know, after our discussion and about an hour's worth of banter, we were finally kind of able to see each, each other's perspective in that they were able to see that, gosh, there's, uh, you know, raising this product organically and having so much of this product rejected and dumped is, uh, is actually harder on the environment then if we were to grow it conventionally and use the pesticides, the herbicides, um, the selective herbicides, so we don't have all the labor in the field, all the hand labor, et cetera, that there, you know, there actually is some merit to conventional agriculture and that, that going organic doesn't necessarily mean going green. So it was, uh, it was an interesting dialogue and really kind of enlightened me in terms of what, you know, what a quote unquote vegan would be looking for in the product that they buy in the grocery store. I'm so surprised to hear all this. I figured that this entire interview was just going to be you espousing the merits of organic agriculture and not any of this. This is honestly like blowing my mind. Um, Let's talk about the actual merits of serve on a couple of organic boards and I've turned them down because I said, guys, I said, I don't think you want my honest opinion because I'm not sure that I'm entirely the best spokesman for organic agriculture. Well, I'm a big believer in the things that we do from an organic perspective. I like the fact that we use, we, we make minimum use of, of herbicides, pesticides, and when we do, they are all the derivatives of some sort of a, a natural occurring organism or natural product that, uh, that's mined from the earth. So we do minimize the use of pesticides, but in, in terms of an, an overall carbon footprint, you know, I mean, I'm no scientist, but I would say that if you actually did a study and looked at it, I think you would find that probably organic agriculture uses more natural resources and leaves a larger carbon footprint than conventional agriculture. Man, so interesting. And it sounds like you're the right person then to talk to about stuff like this, because you shouldn't have just some yes man that's just all about everything. It sounds like you're taking a much more logical approach to all of this. What about on the on the health aspect side of things? Like, wh- where do you stand in terms of your product and organic product versus conventionally farmed um, vegetables? You know, I would have to say that from from a health perspective, I would say that most people who concern con- consume organic, their biggest concern would probably be any kind of a pesticide or herbicide residue that would carry over into that product that they consume. Now, from an organic perspective, you're not going to have any of those residues from any of those synthetic chemicals. So, you know, I'm a bit of a believer 
in that, you know, organically, if you are concerned about any type of residue, then, then absolutely organics are the way to go. But on the flip side, as we've done a lot of testing on both organic and conventional product, the, uh, the tolerance for any residue is very, very low now, whether it's organic product or conventional product. The parts per million of any kind of a pesticide or an herbicide residue in conventional product is uh, it's minute. It's, it's one of those things that you would have to consume, you know, 9,000 pounds of spinach over a 60-day period to even see any kind of a result from a, from a pyrethroid or, a, or, a, uh, or a, you know, one of those methylcarbonols, any kind of those, you know, those pesticides that are used conventionally. So from a health perspective, if you're primarily concerned with just pesticide residue, then absolutely organics are the way to go. Now, in terms of nutritional or vitamin content on organics versus conventional, all the studies show that there's, there's really no difference in product that's raised organically versus conventional in terms of overall vitamin content, antioxidant content, et that's, cetera. It's so funny and, and mind-boggling to me because I have read and seen the exact same content as you then, and that's so bizarre to me because just the eye test would say otherwise. Like, wouldn't you agree? Like, if I ever end up, like, like let's say the store is sold out or there's too big of a difference in cost or whatever it is, and um, particularly, particularly since I've gotten here to Phoenix, like, the stores just do not stock as much organic produce as they did in, in uh, San Francisco. and. Uh-huh. Here, like, I will see these heads of romaine lettuce that are absolutely gigantic, like, you know, conventionally farmed. They're, first yes. of all, huge, like, like ungodly huge, but they're also just not very deep green. Like, it's just kind of like this light green color, you know? And so I just, like, look at that, and I'm like, that doesn't look like it has as much nutrients in it. It looks kind of, like, bleached out, the same way that if you see a piece of farmed salmon versus some wild caught salmon, the wild salmon is this, like, deep, deep red color, and then the farm salmon will be kind of like a light pink, you know? And it's like, you can right. just look at those two salmon and know that they're not the same, and I imagine that the one that's dark red has got to be ha- have more nutrients in it. And I look at my you lettuce, would, and I think you, the same thing. You would think so, but looks can really be deceiving. The appearance different, like in the lettuce, is just a function of cultural practices because you're actually, organically, if you were trying to grow that same head of lettuce to the same size, you've got so much bug and disease pressure that that head of lettuce has to go through. To get to that size, the longer that product is in the field, the more exposure to those stressors that you have. So it stands to reason that if you harvest a little earlier, chances are it's going to have just a little bit better color. You won't get near the weight. You won't get near the density, but uh, you may get a little bit better color. But from a nutritional perspective, it's going to be basically identical. There really isn't anything that you can do organically to change the nutritional content. That's so interesting. So you're saying that these difference in sizes, and that's another thing. I always thought that the difference in size was because these were just like, basically steroided out like gmo foods or something like you're saying it's just because they're allowed to leave them longer because they're so protected not at all and really when you take a look at produce the things that we do gmo really has no involvement whatsoever i mean there's a there's a huge disparity now and actually in what is gmo you know if you take a look you know over the years i mean ever since the uh ever since you know the the roman empire 
You know, they have been selectively breeding plants to do certain things. You know, they have been selecting plants for certain traits. And that has gone on for, you know, for centuries. And it's the same thing that we do in the lettuces. I mean, organically, we may have, uh, you take spinach, for instance. Okay, there are multiple varieties of spinach out there. Most of the spinach is grown over in, let's say, Denmark, Holland, you know, the Netherlands. Most of the, most of the baby leaf stuff originated and comes from the Netherlands. So once we started growing spinach over here in the U.S. and then the baby spinach, you know, what, maybe 15 years ago when it really caught on with consumers, we started doing a lot of the baby spinach, the bag spinach. Um, we started putting more of that spinach in the ground over here, and then you started seeing mildew come into that spinach, downy mildew. Well, they identified it as, you know, basically downy mildew variety number one. Well, in the last 20 years, we have gone from one type of mildew all the way to, at this point, identified there are about 17, but there are about three unidentified strains of mildew out there making that 20. So what's happened is over the course of the last 20 years, they're trying to breed that seed to be resistant to those particular strains of mildew out there. But the problem is, as those strains of mildew begin to morph and change so fast that the seed breeders can't breed seed and breed resistant seed fast enough to keep up with the mildew races. Because by the time they figure out the parent lines, they breed the seed, they actually get the seed into production, it can be up to three years before that actually goes from, you know, from, from concept to, to conception. And... During that period of time, you may have two or three different strains of mildew that have developed, so they have to go right back to the drawing board. So it's kind of interesting that, let's say we plant 10 acres of spinach every week, we may plant 12 different varieties that have tolerance to the different numbers or different, you know, different identifiers that are placed on the mildew. So we might have one that's resistant to number 1, 3, 5, and 10 through 15. We might have another one that covers the one that that one doesn't. So every week it's a real challenge for us to figure out what to plant because you never know which type of mildew is going to surface. Yeah, man, this <laughs> you're like you're you're seriously blowing my mind right now, Doug. This is all so interesting. So what in your mind then would be the most ideal farming practice? Like, is there? Uh, you know, I thought that that there was going to be so much of like organics the way to go. It's so much more sustainable all this stuff, it it sounds like there's probably just no really good sustainable option. Like, uh, aside, you know, people should have their own farms and we should have more diverse farms and it shouldn't just be, oh, here's like 22 acres of spinach. Because if you have 22 acres of spinach together, then, well, yeah, like nature is intelligent and it's going to get some really good mold going on in that area that is specifically good at eating spinach, you know, um, versus exactly. maybe some like biodiversity However, is the best way to farm. If you have a lot of small farms that just have the ability to plant one variety of spinach, those those strains of mildew can surface anywhere. They, they, they seem to know no geographical confines because... We've actually gone to areas that are completely isolated, never had spinach within 250 miles before, and all of a sudden we'll plant spinach and we'll get mildew in that. So if you had a bunch of small small plots of spinach, let's say one acre or half acre, 
they'd have just as good a chance as being wiped out, maybe even a better chance of being wiped out because they wouldn't have the ability to plant the multiple varieties as uh, as we do planting the larger acreage. Interesting. So, what it's, about diversifying uh, your portfolio? Is that like, you know, if there were smaller farms that had, a, like, I know that obviously there's certain groups of plants you can plant together that really benefit each other in terms of growth, you know, like corn stalks giving shade to different types of plants and things like that. Are there, sure. is there any sort of like biodiversity options that help in terms of uh, pests and, and molds and stuff like that as well? Oh, there are definitely. I mean, we'll do, I mean, just some of the things that we do is we'll, we'll plant a cover crop in the wintertime. And a lot of times we'll use a cover crop that's got like a turnish, turnip and radish blend in it. The turnips and radishes, you know, once we till that back into the soil, those will help fight off a lot of the soil-borne diseases. So we'll use crop rotation to, uh, you know, to help fight off some of the soil-borne things that we couldn't control organically. We try not to ever go with the same crop back-to-back on the same acreage. So you don't want to plant spinach back-to-back three times. Then all of a sudden you end up getting what they call an autotoxicity where the plant actually starts to attack itself. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it's very important that you continue with a, a crop rotation, continue with the different types of crops, which is why we began with, uh, with doing some sweet corn, some melons, some uh, broccoli and cauliflower, things like that. We can also do what they call sedan grass, which is a, uh, it actually helps put nitrogen back into the soil. So we can do that during the off season down in the Imperial Valley when it's too hot to grow anything else. Sedan grass does extremely well. And we can get one cutting off of that. We can we can either usually we'll get a cutting and we'll make hay out of that, and then it can be sold as organic sedan grass for export. And then we let it grow back, and then we chop it and we disc it right back in, plow it right back into the ground to help increase the nitrogen content in the soil. Wow, that's so, really cool. So, Doug, these things that you're talking about, like such as the grass that will increase the nitrogen and rotating your crops and things like that, I think these are a lot of the things that people would think about organic farming and think like, yeah, like that's these are the types of things that organic farmers do. Like that's because they're good people and they, they care about the earth and, and yada, yada, yada. Do conventional farmers do similar things to this? Uh, I, I think, you know, like a lot of people's image of conventional farming is they just like pillage the land you know like we're just going to burn this soil out until it is like completely used up and beaten down and then we're going to move on to the next plot you know that that's that's really an interesting perspective because you know growing up in agriculture i mean our our livelihoods have depended on our ability to take care of our natural resources meaning our land our water you know our our air quality i mean if you were to pillage the ground, whether it be conventional or organic, try to get everything you could out of the ground, you, you, simply, you simply can't make a living that way. You simply can't have any kind of reasonable production that way because you're only gonna, going to get out of this land what you put into the land. You know, Basically, you reap what you sow, and there's no way to, to grow and grow successfully you know, if you're abusing the land that you're growing on, if you're abusing the water that you're using to grow your crops, the, you know, <laughs> those two, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, you, you can't mistreat the land. You can't mistreat the earth and yet expect that earth to perform well from a production perspective. But it just simply doesn't work that way. Even your large corporate farms, which we, 
we would be large in comparison to, I would suppose if you had to define us, we would probably fall on the scale of a larger farming operation, especially where it comes to organics. But even your larger operations, the, the farms that farm tens of thousands an acre of acres, they, they're very careful with the way that they treat the land. They do soil tests every year to see what has been depleted in that land and what do they need to do to supplement that, to bring those levels back up. If they're, if they're deficient in zinc, they're going to add zinc. If they're deficient in potassium, they're going to add potassium. If they see that their salt levels have come up, they will start selecting fertilizers that have lower levels of sodium so they can bring those sodium levels back down. So farmers and ranchers, in my opinion, are probably the best stewards of the land. They really don't abuse the land. There are a lot more ways to abuse land than, uh, than, than farming and ranching. it. Yeah, absolutely. So on the organic side of things, it sounds like as a whole, you do not think that it's that bad uh, or bad at all, really, to be having conventional food or conventional produce is uh do you have any like starters for us is there any, like I, I know i've heard things like if a if a fruit or a vegetable has some sort of like shell on it then you shouldn't really care that much if it's organic like so it doesn't necessarily matter if like your bananas are organic or it doesn't matter if like an avocado is organic but things like lettuce you know it does matter if it's organic uh do you have any sort of input on that you know, I think that's all just a matter of personal preference and 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 what you, what you want to do from from your own perspective. Um, you know, an avocado takes up nutrients from the soil just the same way as what lettuce takes up from the soil. Um, all of those things are reflected in the fruit on the inside, not necessarily in the peeling on the outside. Um, I just don't think it really makes a lot of difference in terms of whether or not the fruit's covered or has a shell or if it's an actual leafy green. Um, the covered fruit probably has a little bit more of an advantage from a food safety perspective and that you don't really have to worry about so much, you know, you don't really hear much about E. coli and avocados. You don't hear much so much about, you know, E. coli and or salmonella and bananas. You know, those things tend to occur more in the, in the leafy greens arena because those products are exposed. You know, we grow this stuff outdoors. It's not a controlled environment. So, you know, from a food safety perspective, I don't know that anything grown outdoors is ever going to be, you know, able to be guaranteed 100% pathogen free. Although we do undertake a lot of different measures now as a result of what we call the California Leafy Greens Marketing Agreement, which came to pass a number of years ago when we actually had the issue with the E. coli outbreak in spinach. Mm -hmm. What we do now is every acre that we harvest, we actually micro test for pathogens. We bring a, an independent third party sampler in there that'll go and take individual samples all the way through that particular acre, combine those samples, and then they test them for E. coli, salmonella, and other pathogens. So we can't harvest an acre now until we've gone in and done the micro testing for pathogens on that particular acre. So from a leafy greens perspective, where we do that, we're a little bit different than, say, a, a banana guy, a watermelon guy, an avocado guy, 
and that they don't really have the means to uh, to microtest that product prior to it entering into commerce. Now, their risk of, is substantially lower because it's got a shell or it's got a peel. But uh, but from a leafy greens perspective, you know, we do, we do a lot on the food safety side now to to help prevent the pathogens because, you know, the last thing we want is anybody to get sick from from eating our product. And it's added a lot to our cost of doing business over the last, say, seven to eight years. Um, when I first started in the business, we might spend, you know, four or $5,000 a year just doing random micro tests. Now that we test every acre, I mean, we're up to over a quarter of a million dollars a year oh. just in testing alone. Wow, that is insane. Do conventional farmers have to do the same thing, or is this only conventional for organic? Conventional guys are testing, too. Conven- all your conventional leafy greens growers are doing the same type of testing. Wow. Most of the pro- processors now that, that everyone sells to have a requirement that everything be tested in one-acre increments. Very few bag salad processors, processors out there are willing to accept uh, raw product from a field that has not been micro-tested and has what you call a, a clean certificate of analysis, meaning you've got a report in hand that shows you that that particular acre is free from pathogens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the other costs involved with organic farming versus conventional farming. Where does each fall on sort of like the yearly... Co- like it, uh, an operation of your size... Um, what what could like the estimated expenses be for the course of a year in an operation of your size? If it was conventional, what would the estimated cost be for about a year? Well, let's let's break it down by the acre. Generally, what we do is we look at our costs on a per acre basis. How much did it cost me for that particular acre for that particular year? And as a delta, just to give you an example, like let's say a conventional spinach grower can grow spinach for between four and five thousand dollars an acre. The same organic guys cost are gonna be six thousand sixty five hundred an acre. Because of the added expense that you've got to do to be able to grow that product organically without the use of, of selective herbicides, pesticides, etc. And I mean, you, you said probably a lesser yield at the end of the day as well. A lesser yield. I we generally expect probably about a twenty five percent lower yield organically and about a thirty to a sometimes a forty percent higher cost. Damn, that's crazy. So the profit margin has got to be way lower. The profit margin is much lower, and, and a lot of the profit has been driven out of the organics over the last few years. And remember earlier we talked about you know how organics became mainstream, and your your big players like Walmart decided to get into into organics. And not, you know, I'm not a major big business basher, but whenever you have somebody the size of Walmart that enters into the arena, whether it be organics or whether it be pickles or whether it be plastic dump trucks or whatever, they've got the ability to uh, to kind of make that market come to them in terms of, of pricing. Yeah, so absolutely. Once some of the big mainstream guys started entering this, they expected the organic product to be at a price much closer to conventional product so what that did was that actually drove some of the profit margin out of organics and actually caused a few guys to uh to decide to scrap their organic programs so if you wanted to stay in business you kind of had to get price sensitive and drop your price i mean we went one time for a period of almost four years where our costs went up exponentially every year but but our sale price of our raw organic produce didn't go up one penny 
Damn. That's just crazy. So the margin has gotten a lot slimmer in the last few years. So that just means that we have to do a better job on our end of trying to maximize yields, trying to reduce input costs, et cetera, to try to hold together that margin. Explain to us more your role exactly. I, I feel like as an operations manager, it's just kind of like you're you're just making sure that everyone's farming okay. Like I, you know, it's like I didn't really know what you'd be doing, but I guess yeah, it's like a lot of just bureaucratic paperwork and stuff. You know, it is. I spend probably more time pushing papers than what I do anything. I mean, I try to, you know, first thing in the morning, I try to make the rounds. I try to go look at the product that we're going to have for that week, get an idea what the quality is like, uh, communicate with uh, with our operations guys on the ground, the guys that are actually doing the planting, doing the harvesting, um, doing the ground preparation, doing the irrigating. And uh, usually after a couple of hours in the field, it's in the office. And, and then I'm generally locked in the office for pretty much the rest of the day. Like uh, right now, I'm preparing for our annual organic inspection, which is completely aside from the annual food safety inspection. So we've got, you know, basically reams of documents that have to be reviewed and, you know, certain segments that have to be pulled out for inspection. And uh, we'll prepare those so we can maintain our organic certification. and just, you know, prior to that, it's just it's countless hours of paperwork and preparation just to make sure, you know, that, uh, you know, everybody in the organization has responsibilities for certain segments of paperwork. And what I'll do is I'll put that all together and go through and just spot check to make sure that everything's correct, that everything's being reported correctly. And uh, then I usually compile that. So I have that ready to submit to our inspector. And it can be you know, a lot of times prepping for these audits is kind of like the college days when you're cramming for finals. Um, you know, no matter how good you are at keeping your paperwork up to date or how good you were at doing your homework, it seems like you've always got last minute things to be done. And I mean, there are times when I've spent, you know, the better part of, you know, 20 hours a day for three to four days before a, a big inspection, just getting everything prepared. So I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that we won't have any issues during the inspection. Right. So it is it's become a little. A lot less your ass in the tractor time and a lot more your ass in a desk chair time. <laughs> Which is probably not exactly why you got into it, if I had to guess. Exactly. So let's talk about uh, those different audits and uh, reports and this and that. So you mentioned earlier the whole entire leafy green thing of having to expect many different uh, micro areas of the acre. And then you had the organic food audit. You have the regular food audit. How many different surveys, audits, this, that need to be passed for just like one single crop of, uh, whether it be like, you know, a once a year survey or one specifically for that crop, how many uh, different things like surveys had to be done correctly in order for like one crop of romaine to hit the shelves? Let's say major inspections, you're generally going to go through three. You will have your, your major organic audit. You'll have your major California Leafy Greens Marketing Association audit, which takes a look at, you know, all of your cultural practices, your SOPs, et cetera. And then you'll have your overall, what they call global food safety audit, which is annually. And, and that will give you, once you pass that, you get a certificate for every ranch and it reflects your score on that certificate. And most processors won't take anything from you. If you are at a 90% or below figure, 
Now, some will, depending on what caused the what caused the degradation of the score. But you know, your goal is to try to maintain that ninety-six to one hundred percent on every single global food safety audit that you do. And uh, I can proudly say that I'm very proud of everybody within our organization. Is we have actually reached that goal, and we've got an average of about ninety-eight point nine percent right now over wow. the past five years. So nice. So. Our people have done a great job in terms of documentation and in terms of just good agricultural practices, you know, to be compliant, to make sure that we're food safe, to make sure that we're producing the safest product possible. So that's the annual inspection side. What about the inspections that you guys are doing locally for just a a particular head of lettuce, like either the soil in the area or the lettuces in the area or this or that? Well, what we do is every acre within seven days of harvest, we'll actually have the an independent third party come out and pull the sample. They have to pull the sample, send them to the lab, and they're tested for pathogens for primarily E. coli, salmonella, a um, couple other pathogens in the E. coli family. And those are tested prior to harvest on every single acre that we do. So if we were to do, if we were to crop our entire 2,200 acres two times a year, that would mean that we would have 4,400 individual tests on all the product that we produce. <laughs> That's so crazy. That's it just so, crazy, I can't imagine that you have to manage all of that. If we had been smart when they first started with this, uh, these testing requirements, we would have bought into some of these major labs <laughs> that, uh, that are conducting all of these tests because it's, it's a must. It's, uh, they've got a captive audience now. And these, the major labs that are doing the, uh, actually doing the micro testing and issuing the certificates, have just seen exponential increases in their business in the past seven to eight years. I would love to know uh, more about on the growing side, like what alters the quality of the crop, and how long something has, to, depending on what these factors are, how long things have to be going bad for, or different for, or whatever it is for it to really mess up the crop. So let's say like one day it is, and it's during the summertime, and let's say the normal high for the day is like 90, and one day it's like 110. Is that one day being 110 going to really mess things up, or would it have to be 110 for a whole week? And then like talk about you know rain and just all the different things that can kind of mess things up. You know, what's crazy about this stuff is is let's, let's say that we're in the middle of July. And we're up on the California Central Coast. I have seen spinach that we have planted in the ground from seed in the middle of July. I have seen that spinach go from seed to harvest in as little as 18 days. And that means that from the day that you drop the seed until the day you cut that is in within the baby spinach speck to go in a bag salad, which is going to be a leaf that's about two and a half to three and a half inches, including the stem. Okay. So when you cut that at two and a half to three and a half, let's say under four inches, and you can do that in 18 days, and you think about what, let's say you did have a hot spell where temperatures went from, you know, averaging in the 90s to all of a sudden you crank up to 110 to 112. You're trying to do everything you can to keep that product hydrated and keep it watered, but it can burn in a matter of hours. So you could take an acre of spinach that looked fantastic at 8 o'clock in the morning 
and you could have a hot, hot day, and you could get back there to take a look at that spinach at 8 a.m. the next morning, and that crop could be a total loss. Wow. It doesn't take long, especially when you're talking about product that has such a short, short growth cycle like the things that we grow. I guess that's a good point. That one day is one eighteenth of its entire life. So it's like pretty long. As as opposed to let's say a a nut or an avocado that's harvested on an annual basis. You know, and that product you know, that process starts from you know, from from bloom, you know, all the way through harvest that can be a matter of, you know, six months, eight months, nine months, ten months, whatever it is, you know, one day in the life of that crop is minimal compared to the day in the life of a short-term crop like the things that we grow. So it it doesn't take many negatives to have a lasting impact. I mean, if you have heavy insect pressure, you know, most of the heaviest, the heaviest insect pressure for us is late spring, you know, on the coast. Most of that is uh, on the coast. It would be April and May. Whenever the grass and the hills start to dry up, and all those little buggies come looking for groceries. And the grass is dry, everything's dry in the hills, so the first thing they do is when they find something green, they move into the all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> so then we have to deal with them for, for several months, and generally that pressure just, you know, as a result of natural cycles, will subside. And it's the same way when we go to the desert in the early fall. You know, it's we had some unusual weather in the desert this year. We had a day when it was, you know, mid-November, it was still 101 in Brawley, California. So the bug pressure lasted a long time during the fall season, and it's actually just subsided within the last three weeks once we finally had a few frosts and some cold weather to kind of drive that bug pressure away. So it doesn't take much. I mean, if you have a, you know, a little increase in aphid over a two- or three-day period, you can get enough aphid in your spinach or your arugula to cause that product to be rejected at the processor. Yeah. So you don't, there's not a lot of room for error. So tell us a little bit more about the actual uh, timeline and schedule of growing all this produce. Um, so y- you mentioned that the, the, the spinach can grow in as fast as like 18, 19 days. So, so let's just ballpark it and say under a month or so that it would take yes, the spinach your, your to Your average on everything that we grow is about 30 to 35 days. Okay. So, but you're there for six months in either place. And you said that you do two crops each six months in these places. So what are you yes. doing the rest of the time? Like, uh, just take us through the whole schedule. Like the day that you arrive at the new location, um, what well, are you doing? Let- Let's let's take for instance because we're we're in the Imperial Valley now. That's where I am today. I'm in Brawley, California. So what we do is every year we write schedules, okay? And we understand based on history, you know, how long certain crops have taken to maturity based on the time of year in that particular location. So we know that in order for us to be able to start harvesting, that's actually start gathering product down here in the Imperial Valley, that we've usually got to have our first planting in around the 20th to the 25th of September because we're still in warm weather down here. We can get product in 30 30 days or less. So we will generally put our first planting in down here around the 20th of September. That way we can be harvesting here around the 20th of October. So we plant every week because we know that we need to harvest the same amount of acres every week that we plant every week in order to provide our processors with a consistent supply. So 
let's say that we're planting 10 acres of spinach a week. We know that that yield is conservatively going to be 6,000 pounds an acre, so 60,000 pounds a week. And we know that processor A needs 30, processor B needs 30. So we continue to plant every week so we can supply both those processors with their desired 30,000 okay. pounds Okay, so you're not just planting, spinach. you're not throwing down 2,200 acres of seeds in the first one week. Absolutely not. That's It's a progressive. We would average, let's, you know, we're going to average somewhere between 40 and 70 acres per week planted and harvested. Okay, and that's just... Depending on what the needs of the processors are. No, we don't come in here and plant it all at the same time. So we're, we progressively move across the ground. You know, we've got multiple ranches down here. We're farming five different ranches down here in the Imperial Valley. And we pick, you know, the ranch that we think is more favorable to start on the front end. Let's say, you, you know, it's going to be hotter in the beginning. So you want the ranch that is able to retain the moisture the best. You want the ranch that's able to you know, sustained production during the heat, then we'll generally go to like some of the weaker soils for the midwinter type program, the soils that maybe don't retain water as well, the soils that maybe have higher salt content than others. And then we'll generally cycle back to the better soils for a second pass in the early springtime. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. That all makes total sense. What, uh, what sorts of things do you need to do to the soil to prep it or anything like that? Or do you just go and you, you show up and you just start planting? No, we, we're actually doing like in the, in the desert, we'll be doing dirt work the entire summer. You know, we want to, uh, we want to get that ground opened up. You know, we want to rip it uh, with some deep rippers. Sometimes we'll dip, rip down as far as 36 inches to kind of fracture the soil a little bit so that way when we start irrigating we know that we can get the permeation with our moisture Um, we want to try to get the soil as fine as we possibly can because we want a good seed bed to be able to plant into so even though we're only harvesting down here for roughly five months of the year the agricultural processes go on 12 months out of the year it's like uh, on our coastal operations now, we're already doing ground preparation as we'll be planting up there toward the end of February or middle of February so we can harvest in middle of March. So it really never stops in either location. It's just a little more intense when not only do you have cultural things going on, i.e. plowing, planting, etc., but then you've also got the harvesting side going on too so that's kind of double the workload so whenever you're harvesting and farming in one area at the same time it's a lot busier than it is say for instance for the guys that are on the coast right now they've got a little more of a relaxed schedule they're not they're not on seven days a week they're they're working five five and a half and able to kind of keep up with everything that needs done to prepare for when we start planting up there in the early spring so uh I would ask for advice for people that wanted to do something similar to what you did. Um, but instead, I think I would like to ask for advice for maybe some home gardening and stuff like that. So uh, first of all, you mentioned that one of the first things that you need to do when you arrive at any of these locations is to get the soil prepped by ripping the soil and stuff like that. So if let's yes. say... Any of us are listening to this and we're inspired to maybe go outside and plant some lettuce in our own yard or something, because the fact that we can maybe do this in about a month or something, that sounds pretty doable. Um, 
how far down should we be kind of ripping up our soil and everything? What, what, what do we need to do to make sure that the soil in our backyard is going to be good to be able to grow some lettuce? You know, the nice thing about a small garden is that, you know, you're not irrigating on a large scale, so you're not pushing large volumes of water. You can really closely manage your water. So if that's the case, as long as you don't have incredibly, incredibly hard soil, if you can go out there and just take a regular shovel and just go as deep as a regular shovel can go and turn that up and break that up and get it as fine as you can and come back in there and rake that and break up the large clods, you know, maybe water it a couple of times before you plant and then take that same shovel and turn that over again. And uh, I'd recommend if you're going to do a garden that you go ahead and put your fertilizer down. There are all kinds of different things that you can use as fertilizer. If you want to go organic, all you've got to do is go to any garden center, Lowe's, Home Depot, or whatever you can find, you know, whether it be a chicken pellets or a compost of some sort, you can always put those down and uh, use that as your fertilizer base and kind of till that in and make sure that you've got good moisture when you plant and make sure that your seed bed is is good and soft, you know, no big clods or anything like that, and then uh, plant to your heart's content. And any tips about watering or or care? I feel like anytime I try to grow nearly anything, I kill it. Like whatever the opposite <laughs> of a green thumb is is what I happen to have. I, if I had to guess, I would imagine that I water things too much because you know you get all excited and it's like, oh, I'm going to yes. really take care of it this time, and then you just you kill it with your love. So oh, overwatering is the is the pri- is the primary cause of domestic plant death in the country. I think <laughs> it's very so. sad. And, and, you know, you can do the same thing on our scale, too. If we overwater spinach or we overwater kale or arugula, we can kill it. It'll turn yellow and you can never bring it back. But, you know, what you need to do is just watch your moisture. Let the soil tell you what you need to do. Take your same shovel, dig down. If you can pick up the dirt, squeeze the dirt in your hand, and the dirt clumps together or basically makes like a snowball, that means your moisture is okay. Whenever you dig down and you clump that same dirt in your hand and you squeeze it and it crumbles, that means your plant needs a drink. It's a it's a pretty simple theory. Don't just water to water, but whether let the plant and let the soil tell you what it needs by monitoring it. And if you feel like it needs water because it's crumbling in your hand, give it water and then wait until it dries back down again and then water it again and that'll keep that plant moving. And what about those first few days to week or so while it's still just kind of a seed and has yet to really sprout up out of the ground? Um, what are we looking to do then? What we like to do is we like to keep we like to keep that ground moist and keep that ground soft so that seed can push. Okay, if you were to plant plant your home garden, water it heavy, and then let it dry out on the top, it's going to form like a crust. It'll dry out, and as that seed wants to break through it can't push through that crust so i would really recommend just keeping keeping the you know the top three to four inches or however deep your soil is or however deep your plant your seeds are planted i recommend keeping that moist until you see that plant has sufficiently pushed up through that crust and once that plant has come up through and you can see that it's starting to establish itself then you can start to back off the water and start to let it dry down a bit and then do you recommend that we allow, let's, so let's say we do decide to plant some varieties of lettuce at our house. 
do you recommend that we just keep on kind of cutting them um, from the top and let them keep growing until they flower? And when they flower, will they drop more seeds of their own? Or should we yank the entire thing up every time and just tear, the, tear it all out at once, like as if we were you know, getting ahead of lettuce? You know, generally, once they flower, they will drop seeds. However, that when you're selecting seed to regrow plants, most of that seed is what you would call sorted and rogued and you pick your more you know you pick your healthiest seed your better shaped seed and ge- those are generally the more vigorous plants you know most of the time whenever that thing drops seeds they're not going to be as vigorous as if you started with a fresh parent line or fresh seeds you know you can end up with some inbreeding and things like that there um now i have seen before i've seen in an area where we had tomato plants one time and tomatoes fell off went to seed and, and my gosh, the tomato plants came back beautiful. So it can be done, but you're better off to start with uh, with fresh varieties and fresh parent lines every time that you do it. So you get a you get you you get a more vigorous plant. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Cool. Well, Doug, man, thank you so much for all of the advice. I, I'm I've been like sitting here as you're giving going over all this advice. I'm like looking out at this plot of dirt in my backyard, just like picturing what I'm going to do with it after talking to you. Now, I'm definitely going to get some stuff going on. So um, I see great things growing, but you need to do it over there in Arizona. This is your this is your time. It's now. my window. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't, don't miss your window. So I'll uh, I'll hook you up with some seed the next time I see you. I'll get you some spinach and some arugula and some fun things you can put in. Oh, man, perfect. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time, Doug, and for all the interesting info. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Blake. It was my pleasure. Hey, everyone. It's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show, be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview, a particular field that you would like to hear about, or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show. Thanks so much for listening, you guys.